Hello, and welcome to Book Club of One. I am Jacob, a librarian, and through the course of a year I read a lot of books. Join me as I detail and share my impressions of the books that have entertained or educated me the most. The slow creep to 100 episodes. We'll be celebrating that landmark in August if the production schedule keeps on. A lot more fiction read lately. Hopefully that will continue for the summer. Still some fun stuff coming in the neck alley queue and some other things I've been wanting to get to from the to-be-read pile. Anything you're hoping to read this summer? R.F. Kuang had a new book out on the 16th. I hope to read it as an e-book coming soon. It's going to get warmer, so visit your library and stock up now. Witch King by Martha Wells, who is a white American author of speculative fiction. She earned a BA in anthropology from Texas A&M University. Her first book, The Element of Fire, was published in 1993 by Tor. Since then, she has written fantasy novels, young adult novels, media tie-ins for Stargate and Star Wars, and nonfiction essays on fantasy and science fiction subjects. Her best-known work, the Murderbot Diaries series, has been awarded four Hugo Awards, two Nebula Awards, and three Locus Awards. The first in the series, All Systems Red, was featured in episode number 28. Witch King is coming out on May 30th, but I was able to read a copy through NetGalley. It has been on my to-read list since it was announced. Kay is the fourth prince demon known as the Witch King. After waking up dead, he seeks to find out who murdered him and why, while also searching for the rest of his found family. He will have to retrace his past to find the answers. Good thing his magical abilities are fueled by pain. So this is something of a return for Wells, who has written several fantasy series. The book opens with a list of characters, both in the present and the past. A bit daunting, but not unknown for a work of high fantasy. It also suggests that the narrative is going to be that one that splits between past and present. Wells clearly enjoys the world-building and writing characters that use their minds more than giving in to violence, unless they feel it necessary. Kay awakes in a custom-built prison, one designed to specifically counter his powers. Fortunately for him, a lowly magician thought he could master Kay and make him a pawn. He fails and pays the cost. Sonya was also brought along to serve as a sacrifice, but is instead rescued and becomes one of the party. Her inclusion is beneficial and a clever way to go about writing this book in that she can serve as the audience surrogate, explaining how the mechanics of the world work and why Kay is motivated to do what he does. His main goal is to figure out why he was imprisoned and to reunite with his found family. It's a tale about the larger struggles between people as a whole fighting for home and peace on the small scale of what motivates one individual. After initially finishing it, I felt like the listing of characters was unnecessary as I did not reference it, but that the cast was a bit larger than it needed to be, with some characters having unfortunately very similar names. But upon reflection, I don't really remember most of the characters' names, but do remember pretty well the plot and the major figures in it. And there are a lot of delightful conversations, much weight in what is said and not said. All the same, I look forward to the next Murderbot book due out later this year. Dead Collections by Isaac Fellman, a trans man, archivist, and author. His first book, The Breath of the Sun, won the 2019 Lambda Literary Award for LGBT science fiction, fantasy, and horror. 
Feldman holds an MLIS from Emporia State University and an MA in English from the University of Oregon. He is the reference archivist for the Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual, Transgender, GLBT, Historical Society located in San Francisco. I'm not sure of where I heard of this book, possibly through a Book Riot list featured of new books or vampire books. Dead Collections is about Saul, who is secretly a vampire living in his basement office at an archive because he fears the sun. On the job, he meets Elsie, the wife of a niche television writer who has come to donate the writer's papers. The promotional summary describes it as a book that, quote, explores what it means to be at home in your own body, end quote. And Feldman definitely knows their archives. It is delightful to have a writer setting their plot in a place that they know very well and can accurately describe the different processes and workflows. Sure, Saul is living in their workplace, but they are, but he is very clear about where food is and it's not allowed in that workplace. Feldman also details how vampirism is spread in this world and what that means for day-to-day life, which means Saul has a transfusion of fresh blood once a week and no sunlight because sunlight will kill him. Foods and drinks can be ingested without what we do in the shadows, projectile vomiting. And this is a world with at least vampires and possibly some other supernatural life. The narrative is driven by Saul's professional work-life issues and a burgeoning relationship with Elsie, widow of that semi-famous television writer. Possibly against ethics, but they seem to be working it out. Saul's been a vampire for five years and has been in something of a stasis. Prior to becoming a vampire, Saul had been in the process of transitioning and had to adjust to the new, his body in a new way, adding in the complications of vampirism. He'd had his own apartment and car, but out of fear of the sun, gave them up and is now squatting at work, which management didn't know about to begin with, but now they might have some inkling, which could be a big problem. Elsie is a catalyst for change, something long overdue for Saul. I want to highlight one particularly pertinent passage from page 239. Quote, But nothing in life is permanent, you know, and nothing in love either. We love a body slipping through time, and we cherish it as time strips parts of it away, and we feel good until it slips away from us entirely. End quote. Terminal Alliance, Janitors of the Post-Apocalypse, Book One, by Jim C. Hines, a white American author of speculative fiction. He holds an undergraduate degree in psychology and a master's in English. Through the course of his career, he has had more than 50 short stories published, and he has written written numerous books, including a Fables Legends tie-in and the Magic Ex Libris series. So I'm familiar with this author from having read that Magic Ex Libris series, and this was a newer series. The Krakow came to Earth to invite humanity to join the Alliance of Sentient Species, except by the time they arrived, a plague had wiped out half of Earth's population, and what was left had reverted to an aggressive animalistic state. Somehow, the Krakow managed to save some of humanity, and a century later, humans have become part of the Alliance, at least at the lowest level of the hierarchy. We follow Marion Mops Adamopoulos and her crew of hygiene and sanitation as they respond to attack on their ship. They are pulled into a conspiracy of what first contact with human was, humanity was really like. So Jim C. Hines is a writer who exemplifies kind of the, the lighter fun works. Magic Ex Libris was serious at points, but it also fully embraces the creativity of the world they inhabit. So 
here we have uh, a more traditional science fiction story where there's an interstellar empire, humanity has been part of it, but they're second-class citizens, and they're working within the system to try and change that. So our main character is part of that sanitation crew, so again, that lowly service-based industry, but she is, seems more intelligent than the typical human, so is using that to her advantage to try and make things more favorable for humans overall. But uh, the humans that are affected with whatever this virus is become feral and tend to attack anyone or anything around them. So uh, Mop's, Mop's ship is attacked uh, by a biological weapon that kills the pilots, which are the Krakow, and the ship is stranded until Mops and her team are able to secure the vessel and then learn how to steer and fly it. And as they work to understand why the attack occurred, they uncover a conspiracy about what the true first contact with humanity was like. So this is the first book of the trilogy, and I'm about to start book two. So I'm curious to see where Mops has gone from the adventures of book one. Continuing our trend of talking about books that are first in the series, uh, the next one we're going to discuss is The Three-Body Problem, which is book one of Remembrance of Earth's Past series. It's by Louis Sijin, a Chinese computer engineer and science fiction writer. His first book, China 2185, was published in 1989. His work overall has earned nine of China's Galaxy Awards, and he received the Hugo Award for The Three-Body Problem in 2015. In 2017, Death's End was awarded the Locus Award, which is the third in this series. It was translated to English by Ken Lui, an American author of science fiction and fantasy whose own work has earned multiple Hugo and Nebula awards. He has also worked as an editor and translator, and some of his works are on my to-read list as well. So I'm not sure where I came across this book. I know I've seen it many times as a best science fiction title and finally had the chance to listen to it as an audiobook. It is set against, quote, set against the backdrop of China's cultural revolution, a secret military project sends signals into space to establish contact with aliens. An alien civilization on the brink of destruction captures the signal and plans to evade Earth. Meanwhile, on Earth, different camps start forming, planning to either welcome the superior beings and help them take over a world seen as corrupt, or to fight against the invasion. End quote. That's from the official summary. So this begins in the very real trauma of the Chinese Cultural Revolution, showing uh, something of what it was like for those accused of having ideas against the Red Guard. Uh, and in the very beginning here, a professor is killed uh, for refusing to denounce the theory of relativity before his daughter as a witness, and she is sent off for re-education. And while being re-educated is further accused of having uh, impure thoughts or knowledge or understandings due to uh, her reading and uh, writing about Rachel Carson. She's offered the opportunity to work at a defense research facility devoted to contacting extraterrestrial life instead of being imprisoned, and she embraces this and works to make herself indispensable to the operation as a means to protect her life. And she settles in for quite a long time. After this introduction, we then jump to the present day, which is 40 years later, uh, and this professor's daughter uh, is discovered to be linked to a series of suspicious deaths of physicists. 
So as the big character and the police detective he's working with seek to solve them, they wind up uh, absorbed in a complex role-playing game that's enjoyed some fringe popularity that is centered on the physics problem in the book's title. So when players enter the game, they meet uh, leaders of a civilization on a planet that has three suns. And depending which sun is showing on the Earth, it's either a time of peace and prosperity or it's a time when the surface of the Earth is burned beyond any hope of life and it hope uh, the life goes into kind of a stasis mode until a period of relative prosperity can return. So it's a complicated plot and requires some close attention, but outside the passages focused on the game, there are a lot of power dynamics at play with international finance, the committed detective, and different parties trying to work to make a better world or await the arrival of the aliens that may have contacted Earth 40 years ago. But when those signals arrived, what did they say and who responded? Portable Magic, A History of Books and Their Readers, by Emma Smith, professor of Shakespeare Studies at Oxford University and a fellow of Hertford College. She has published and lectured widely on Shakespeare and other early modern dramatists and worked with numerous theater companies. Some of her lectures are available as podcasts, Not Shakespeare, and Approaching Shakespeare. I'm not, again, a book I'm not entirely sure where I first heard of it, possibly through a book page review, uh, but I found a copy at my local library. So this takes direct inspiration from Stephen King's description of books as portable magic. Smith explores different aspects and ideas of books from the creation of them, different sizes and formats, a specific number of words censored in a particular book, and of course, anthropodermic bibliopathy. So this is definitely a popular history geared at more common readers, and it gleefully alternates topics, often discussing many well-known ones to those familiar with the book history, such as Nazi book burning, Gutenberg Bibles, books versus e-book, etc. Smith embraces the scattered possibilities, stating in the introduction that she doesn't expect readers to necessarily read it straight through, but to maybe hop around and pursue their own interests. It, of course, begins with Gutenberg, but also looks to the actual precursors, such as the Chinese invention of paper, and the oldest known dated book written by a Korean Buddhist in 1377. From that initial chapter, we jump to the trenches. Uh, and then from there, we go to, to Christmas and the bo- tradition of giving books for Christmas, looking at some of the early bestsellers that were sold in this way and then transition to looking at three different women and the ways they chose to portray themselves with literature or literary surroundings uh, before going to Silent Spring, talking about the legacy books can have where they might start off as something uh, like an ephemeral paperback before transitioning to something more of a classic. Uh, and then we discuss some of the books lost on the Titanic, rel- books, religions of the book in general, and book burning. So across 16 chapters, Smith is exploring the possibilities of the book and the many ways they've been used, evaluated, or simply read and enjoyed. It's a thoughtful work, and the chapters could serve as excellent introductory readings for history and anthropology discussions. Some questions that arise, such as, should Mein Kampf be in print? What effects does does that have on us societally? 
What does it say about the nation or part of the world that is selling the most copies of it? Who deserves credit for the invention of printing? The person who popularized it for the Western world or those who first established the processes that would make it possible? Kind of like looking at the record player, where Edison gets the credit for it, but there was a lot of incremental developments, uh, some of it through his lab, that led to the development of the modern record player. And does it matter how one reads? Audiobooks versus ebooks versus print? Well, attentive listeners should know the answer to that. If not, the outro will be along after we talk about one more book. This episode's Reading Soon in Progress book is Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City by Matthew Desmond. Quote, Princeton sociologist and MacArthur genius, Matthew Desmond follows eight families in Milwaukee as they struggle to keep a roof over their heads. Evicted transforms our understanding of poverty and economic exploitation while providing fresh ideas for solving one of 21st century America's most devastating problems. Its unforgettable seeds of hope and loss remind us of the centrality of home, without which nothing else is possible. End quote. That description via Goodreads. This has been another episode of Book Club of One. Thank you for listening. I welcome constructive criticism and book recommendations, or even if you found a book through this episode and want to share the story, feel free to reach out through Instagram and Gmail at Book Club of Uno. Book Club of One is recorded and distributed by Anchor.fm. And remember, no one should be shamed for reading.